on ABC Radio National. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for your regular Between the Lines presenter, Tom Spitzer, who's on an extended break. On this week's programme, Osama bin Laden and a re-evaluation of the world's most infamous yet ultimately failed terrorist leader. Analyst Nellie LaHood has spent the last few years poring over thousands of files that make up bin Laden's now declassified personal papers and correspondence. In light of this new information, she suggests much of what we thought we knew about bin Laden and al-Qaeda was misguided, misplaced and in some cases downright wrong. Then in the second half of the program, we turn our attention to Lebanon. The country is in dire straits. On just about every indicator or metric you can imagine, the situation has gone from bad to worse. To appraise us of just what is going on in Lebanon and what this week's election result there might mean for this struggling nation, I'll be joined from Beirut by Kim Khatas, journalist, writer, foreign correspondent and non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. But first, to the Bin Laden Papers. An important new book has just been published and it offers fresh and revealing insights into Osama Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. The release of his personal papers is a treasure trove for analysts and it adds layers to what we thought we knew about the world's most famous terrorist. Nelly LaHood is the author of the Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader and His Family. It's published by Yale University Press. Uh, Dr. LaHood is a senior fellow in New America's International Security Program. Her research has focused really on the evolution and ideology of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Among her many qualifications and appointments, critically, she has a PhD from the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. Nellie, thanks so much for joining us on Between the Lines. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be on your program, Kylie. Now, Osama bin Laden's personal papers, this is an amazing story, just the getting of them. How did they end up in American hands? Well, the papers were recovered during the raid that killed bin Laden in May 2011. But uh, there's a rich story behind the papers. Uh, The mission uh, was supposed to be completed within 30 minutes. That's the SEALs mission. And that's because Admiral McRaven, who oversaw the raid, had completed a study back in 1998, uh, 1996, and his study explored eight historical special operations missions. And he had concluded that time was of the essence and that completing such missions should not exceed 30 minutes. And any delay equates with vulnerability. So this was part of the SEALs training um, for the raid. And while the mission was underway, and though the SEALs killed bin Laden before the 30 minutes was up, they still asked for extra time on the ground because they found computers and electronic gear on the second floor. So McRaven immediately understood the potential invaluable intelligence the computers could yield, and he gave the SEALs the go-ahead. I reached out to him to inquire about the additional time on the ground, and he kindly let me know that at 40 minutes or so, he told the SEALs to wrap it up, and about eight minutes later, they took off. So the reasons we have these papers is thanks to um, the additional perilous 18 minutes that the SEALs spent in the compound. So what did they retrieve 
exactly, Nelly? How much did they retrieve? What we have really is a is a an extensive collection. What happened is that they've been declassifying these papers since 2012. But in November 2017, the CIA declassified thousands of files, a massive volume, and these consisted of text, audio, and video files. I I must have clicked on thousands of files before I determined that the text files were the most important. And with the help of two research assistants, we systematically went through all the text files. There are nearly 97,000 files. Most of them turned out to be newspaper articles and other materials that are publicly available. But within the text file, the text files, we also found Al-Qaeda's internal communications, nearly 6,000 Arabic pages. Nelly, as a long-term scholar and researcher into terrorism and the history of Al-Qaeda and the key personalities, what was it like for you when you first started looking through these documents? Well, we're, we're talking here about Al-Qaeda's internal communications. These were Al-Qaeda's closely guarded secrets. They were never meant for public consumption. So from my perspective and in view of my research background, there is nothing more unique to study the history of Al-Qaeda post 9-11 as, as it was being made by bin Laden and those in his closest orbit. There's nothing like it. So it is interesting, isn't it, because Osama bin Laden was, you know, famously obsessed by secrecy and his own security. I mean, he didn't use email, the internet, mobile phones. He was incredibly cautious. Yet by what you're describing, there was a trove, a collection of key communications kept, at least electronically, so much of his personal correspondence and papers what was he thinking? How do you explain the, the tension between those two things? You're right. What was he thinking? It, it, it's actually astonishing that we have these papers because he was supposed to have destroyed them all. And we know this because about a month before the raid, his top associate in North Waziristan, Atiyah, sent him a 12-page letter. And at the end of that letter, there was a PS, something to the effect that I destroyed all the SIM cards on which we've been saving our correspondence as we do periodically. And this is a gentle reminder that you should do the same on your end. Now, having said that, I'd like to know whether these papers were recovered, that these papers were recovered from deleted files, meaning did bin Laden delete his files and the intelligence agencies had the know-how to recover them? or he simply couldn't let go of these materials. So I don't know if I'll ever find out. Are you aware of how um, comprehensive the collection is in the sense that do you think there are gaps? Are there years missing? Is there information that you wished had appeared but didn't appear? No, that's true. Um, we don't have everything. Uh, that was communicated. It's very clear from the letters that we have that some letters are in fact missing. However, because we have such a massive volume, we can reconstruct from the existing letters the key events in Al-Qaeda's post 9-11 history. What are the key, I suppose, moments or messages that surprised you in, in the collection? 
you know, it took me a long time to work out which was which was the most surprising because the letters are brimming with revelations. I guess the biggest story um, of the letters is the gap between what was reported about Al-Qaeda and what actually happened to the group. And I think here, because because the, the, the papers really change the narrative completely about Al-Qaeda post 9-11, that is not what I expected to find out when I first started working on the papers. I, I expected that I would, you know, that it would enhance our understanding of, of what was happening. I didn't really expect them to change radically the narrative about Al-Qaeda. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morrison. My guest is Nelly LaHood, author of the Bin Laden Papers. So Nelly, going back to that point, what is it that was that everyone was getting wrong about Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden that these papers clarified for you? Sure. I mean, far from being in command of global jihad, as it was often reported in the media, Bin Laden was in hiding. We learned from the letters that in the wake of the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, Bin Laden had to disappear out of necessity. This probably occurred sometimes in November 2001. And for nearly three years, he cut off communications with his associates. And Al-Qaeda itself was shattered when the Taliban regime collapsed in December 2001. And we know this because when bin Laden resumed contact with his associates in 2004, they apprised him of Al-Qaeda's grim situation. And we find in the letters they speak of the group's afflictions, aimlessness and their ordeals. And judging by subsequent letters all the way up until 2011, Al-Qaeda did not regain its ability to mount international terrorism. And that is really a very different picture from the one that we read about post 9-11 for almost a decade. What prompted you? You said there was a direct connection between the collapse of the Taliban government and the fate of al-Qaeda. How was that so definitive? Well, al-Qaeda did, did not really anticipate that the US would go to war after 9-11. They expected at most a limited airstrike, and the last thing that they expected was a war. And what happened when the Taliban regime collapsed so quickly and the US air campaign, they determined at the time that it was targeting Arab fighters. Mullah Omar at the time decided to ask the Arabs to evacuate Afghanistan. And he issued an order around December 6, I think, calling on all the Arab fighters to evacuate Afghanistan. So here we're talking about not just Arab men, Arab fighters. We're talking about Arab fighters with their wives and sometimes up to four wives. Some of these fighters had as well as their children. And they had nowhere else to go. And so they really faced a very, very bad predicament. So Al-Qaeda's leaders, senior leaders and their families were either captured in, in Pakistan or detained, uh, also detained in Iran. And, and what Al-Qaeda was left with 
you know, except for Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who also went into hiding, the remaining leaders of Al-Qaeda were second-tier leaders. It is extraordinary. You, you talk not only about um, bin Laden in the book, of course, but also the role that was played by other members of his family, particularly his third wife and his daughters. What have your has your research revealed about the input, the role that they had in the organisation of Al-Qaeda? Well, the personal was political in the Bin Laden household, and some of the letters paint a vivid portrait of family life in the compound. As you said, Bin Laden's third wife, Siham, and their two daughters, Maryam and Sumeya, were heavily involved in drafting Bin Laden's public statements. Uh, Maryam and Sumeya particularly were committed to the cause championed by their father, and their, her input was a source of immense pride for the family. One letter remarks that um, their, their contributions are broadcast on TV, meaning that they authored the public statements that we heard Bin Laden deliver over the years. There's also a unique document that was recovered. It's a handwritten notebook used to transcribe family conversations during the last two months of Bin Laden's life. It is unique because it allows us to be on a fly on the wall, if you like, in the Bin Laden household. And during those months, the family met every day, sometimes twice a day, to discuss the events of the Arab Spring as they were preparing Bin Laden's public statement that, because he needed to respond to the events. And on the pages of this family notebook, we could really observe the dynamics um, in, in the household. We can, we can virtually hear Bin Laden soliciting the input of his family to his public statement. We can observe the dynamics that he had with his daughters, particularly Sumeya. This is really vividly on display in the notebook. Sumeya comes across as someone who did not hesitate to push her father to confront challenging issues. She often provided her own perspectives, and I'm not talking about light issues. For instance, at one point early on in the notebook, she draws her father's attention to the fact that there's hardly any mention of Al-Qaeda in the news, and that's in relation to the Arab Spring, and we find bin Laden defensively responding, you know, well, I heard somebody did. But she goes on to comment also on the style of the public statement, on the content, and on, on very challenging issues. Let's talk about the Arab Spring for a moment. Of course, it was the last few months, ultimately, of bin Laden's life uh, when he witnessed what was going on with the Arab Spring, what was going on with the First Nations uh, to uh, support those uprisings. I mean, what was his reaction? Do we know? What were his hopes? He, after all, was a kind of popular uprising that may well have chimed with some of his aspirations. You're right. I mean, initially, bin Laden rejoiced that Arab protesters brought down dictators that he and his organizations had been fighting for decades to defeat. But he was also challenged by the unpredictability of the situation. Also, because the protesters achieved through peaceful protests, what he couldn't achieve through the jihad was also another question mark. At some point, uh, Ismaya, his daughter, artfully points out to her father that in light of what's happening, we need to address, she tells him, the relevance of jihad in your response, because some among the new generation are going to think 
that political change could occur through peaceful protests rather than jihad. So it was a, he, it, it was mixed. Um, his reaction was mixed. Can we just talk a little more about the the raid itself, and I guess how we all know how that popular narrative has unfolded about what happened to Bin Laden and how he was found. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about how close his hiding place was to this elite Pakistani military academy. I mean, and suggestions that at some level the Pakistani government or at least the Pakistani intelligence services must have been complicit in the hiding of bin Laden. Did the papers reveal anything along those lines? Absolutely not. I mean, bin Laden went to great lengths to hide from the Pakistani authorities. The family was confined to the compound and adopted stringent security measures to evade the authorities. For instance, the children were not allowed to step outside and play in the courtyard without an adult supervising them because they didn't want to draw attention to the fact that Arabs were living in the compound. And um, by the way, nine out of the 16 people who lived in the Bin Laden household were actually children. More tellingly about the security measures that they adopted is that the letters make it clear that they didn't have access, as we said earlier, to the internet so that they wouldn't be intercepted by the authorities. And frankly, if he did have the support of the Pakistani authorities, he uh, we wouldn't be having these papers. Now, bin Laden, of course, was said to have been found because the Americans discovered the identity of his courier. Does that hold up, that, that narrative hold up? Um, in the book, I present an alternative narrative. To be clear, I don't know what went right for the CIA, but I have a pretty good idea of what went wrong for bin Laden. As you said, the official narrative has Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti, the courier, according to the CIA, who lives next door in the compound. But that's that's not what the letters reveal. Um, in fact, Abu Ahmad uh, al-Kuwaiti and his brother never went back and forth from Abu Tabad to North Waziristan. Instead, bin Laden's communications um, with his associates in North Waziristan were part of a highly complex and impenetrable operation that was made up of a closed circle consisting of two intermediaries and a courier in between. Um, Bin Laden didn't know, let alone meet his courier. And what's more, the courier himself was clueless about the nature of the items that he was carrying, let alone their intended destination. Now, I have to say that this, these aren't things that are discussed casually in, in the papers. And out of thousands and thousands of papers, of pages, this network of couriers is listed in one of them. Um, so I was, I was really fortunate that, that we have this letter recovered. But at some point, the Pakistani intelligence penetrated this clandestine trio and specifically they briefly detained one of the two intermediaries and subsequently the courier himself was captured. And to go back to the official narrative, um, Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti, according to the CIA narrative, he was not part of the closed circle. Instead, he and his brother played a very, very minor role in the delivery and pickup of the letters. So it is... My sense is that it is the detention and capture of the other two 
that subsequently led to the discovery of of Bin Laden's hideout. I mean, critically, you write that the intelligence community, in fact, was so obsessed by the Al-Qaeda brand, in effect, that there was a kind of a, they suffered a kind of myopia. They failed to see the divisions within the broader jihadi movement and really missed the rise of Islamic State as a result of that. It's true. Um, From a policy perspective, the faulty assessment of al-Qaeda's capabilities was was really consequential. Uh, Regional jihadi groups, including the parent group of the Islamic State, were all judged to be controlled by al-Qaeda, as if al-Qaeda had the ability to orchestrate everything from North Waziristan. And in doing so, the intelligence community overlooked these groups as separate agendas and, and underestimated them as entities in their own right, and, and and ISIS is a case in point. In fact, the letters make it really clear that Al-Qaeda was, Al-Qaeda's leaders were having great difficulties influencing these regional jihadi groups. And often we find them pleading with these regional jihadi groups, including with the parent group of today's ISIS, that please do less and not more terrorism. So, yes, I think Al-Qaeda, you know, the assessment, the intelligence community's assessment of Al-Qaeda's capabilities were, yeah, they were consequential on on their inability to assess the rapid rise of ISIS as a separate entity from Al-Qaeda. Nelly, I've got to ask, why were they pleading with these groups to conduct less terrorism? Is it because they wanted, they saw that as their ultimate role? That's how Al-Qaeda wielded its authority and it didn't want any competition in that regard? No, not at all. Um, Al-Qaeda's main objective, particularly that of bin Laden, was to target the United States. And by 2010, we find uh, we find bin Laden really being exhausted and finding that these regional jihadi groups as indiscriminate attacks against uh, uh, Muslims in the marketplace, as well as in in their in their mosques, uh, he he came to realize that they had become a liability to jihadis, to jihad, and to Al Qaeda. And he spells it out in his letters that they have become a li- liability. And he says the Muslim public is repulsed by these attacks. Bin Laden wanted all these groups to be focused on global jihad, meaning against the United States, and he was very concerned that uh, many of these regional jihadi groups were focusing on the local regimes instead of instead of just remain remaining focused against the US Nelly finally in in your judgment um, will these papers do you think change the way that history will remember Osama bin Laden and his actions well, we get to know him pretty well through the papers, and uh, and a different picture emerges. He was he was an impressive planner, and the papers uh, credit Bin Laden and not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed with having come up with the idea of flying planes into buildings. His methodical mind is also on display in the letters where we find him planning other attacks, which fortunately his organization couldn't deliver. But on what matters most. The papers make it clear that bin Laden was a failed terrorist leader who lacked a basic understanding of international relations and did not appreciate the limits of terrorism.
Nellie, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating. Thank you. That's Nellie LaHood, a senior fellow in the New America's International Security Program. Her just-published book, The Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader and His Family, is published by Yale University Press. ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Now, coming up, Lebanon. What can we glean about the country's future from this week's election results? And what is life like there for the majority of Lebanese? Australians are chowing down on their democracy sausages. In the Middle East, voters are already chewing over the results of recent elections in Lebanon. While the Morrison government navigated higher interest rates and poor jobs results in the lead up to Saturday's poll here, in Lebanon last month, the Beirut government declared bankruptcy ahead of the vote. Increasing fuel prices, lack of government subsidies has prompted food shortages, power cuts, and that's all before you even factor in the devastating blast at Beirut's port last year that symbolised, for many, the catastrophic outcomes of a corrupt system. To unpick this and more, we're joined on Between the Lines by Kim Khatas. I'm glad to say Kim is a renowned journalist and writer of Lebanese descent herself, but who divides her time between Beirut and Washington. Her most recent book is called Black Wave. Uh, It's an examination of the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which she argues has shaped the modern Middle East. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be on the show, Kylie. Lebanese politics is, of course, never straightforward, but always fascinating, always bordering on the dramatic. This year, even more so. Can you tell us about the major outcomes that are already clear from the vote? Lebanese politics, I think, are increasingly similar to uh, the politics everywhere. I think we can argue that from Australia to the US, from Ukraine to France, there is a general sense that the politics around the world have become very complicated. So I like to think that we've just been avant-garde um, in the way that our system works or or doesn't work. And avant-garde also in showing a little bit to the world how you navigate this battle between autocracy and democracy, which is not always a battle between democratic states and autocratic states, but sometimes between democratic forces within a country fighting back against autocratic tendencies where democracy is neither lost or won. And that's what we saw happen in Lebanon over uh, the weekend. The votes on uh, Sunday, May 15th across the country saw an incredible outcome for new independent opposition candidates who broke through decades-old uh, system, 
pushing back against traditional families, against traditional established um, political uh, parties to grab 10% of seats in parliament. Now, you could argue 10% is nothing, but it's better than the 0% that they used to have. And that's a result of a real effort by protesters, activists, civil society members, but also you know, just generally professionals, um, professors, uh, doctors, etc., who took to the streets after the economy collapsed in 2019 to protest and try to get their country back, and who realized, like many people across this region from Egypt to Iraq, that revolution is not enough to bring down a system, that's fine, but if you want to rebuild, you have to get your hands dirty and get into politics. And that's what we're seeing, not only in Lebanon, but also in other countries in the region. Not to say that everything is going to be hunky-dory from now on, but it is an incredible step of huge significance, but there's still a lot of trouble ahead for Lebanon. What was voter turnout like? I mean, you talk about this new energy from the professional classes, Mm. from independent-minded candidates to break through the old kind of feudal lines and the major parties who had held sway in parliament previously. Did, Did that trickle through to everyday voters? Did we see more voters coming out responding to these campaigns? So there's been a lot of debate about the turnout because initially it was set at 41% by the Interior Ministry, which was lower than the last election in 2018, which initially really worried people during the day uh, when they thought, you know, perhaps these young activist candidates were not going to make it. In the end, what happened is that those people who wanted change did come out to vote. And a lot of people who were disillusioned by their own parties or who did not want to vote for traditional parties but were afraid to vote for the younger, newer candidates stayed home. So you had a little bit of an advantage in the lower turnout for those candidates who had managed to rally their new base. They increased their hold uh, or they increased their performance by 200 percent. Obviously, as I said, they started from very little. Um, Most of the traditional parties are down by 20 percent, 16 percent, 15 percent. The Shia militant group uh, Hezbollah uh, was up uh, about 16 percent. And some Christian parties were also up by the same same amount. Now the Ministry of Interior has put out a revised turnout number, which is closer to 49%. I think we shouldn't worry too much about turnout because the lists of eligible voters in Lebanon are very outdated. They still include people who passed away a long time for complicated reasons that have to do with census. So I think we should look at the outcome and the result. And the outcome is that these um, activist, independent opposition candidates have managed to break through in a very significant way. As I said, not only have they pushed back against the corrupt system the oligarchy that has ruined this country, but they've broken the monopoly of sectarian-based political parties that have had this this hold on Christians in their community, on Druze in their community, on Sunnis in their community. And they've put forward a new cross-sectarian agenda that is a much more nationally uh, inclusive agenda. Is that a potentially more stable uh agenda for the future 
of Lebanon? Do, do these do these election results in terms of the prospects of stability in the future? Unfortunately, in the short term, no, because while Hezbollah and its allies have lost the majority in parliament and the new majority um, is against them, this new majority of, you know, 52, 53% is very fragmented because it still does include all traditional sectarian-based parties. And it's not clear that the young, um, they're not all young, I shouldn't just say young activists. I mean, some of them are, you know, mid-career professionals who've now, who are now at in parliament, but let's say the nascent uh, independent opposition, it's not clear whether they will be willing to do the um, the work of politics, the real politic, the pragmatic compromises that are going to be necessary. We'll have to see how they are going to manage in their new roles as an opposition. Well, I guess they're the majority now, but as a as a new rising force in in parliament. And in the short term, I think we should expect a lot of stalling by the losers, by Hezbollah, by the Christian party that is affiliated to the president, Michel Aoun. They feel like they're losing their grip on power and they're going to do everything they can to stall. They're now demanding that they should still be included in a cabinet of national unity, which is usually not how democracy works. If you lose elections, You don't get to participate in the cabinet. But their argument is that Lebanon requires always consensual democracy where everybody is included. But they only make that argument in their own favor and never in favor of the other party. So in in the short term, I think we'll see um, some instability, um, possibly some more protests, some stalling of all the institutional processes. But I like to think of this as a generational process. Um, and for me, this started in 2005 with the first wave of protests in Lebanon. And it started with the Arab uprisings in Egypt and, 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 and Tunisia and, other, and Syria, where the young generation of this region is learning how to push back against an entrenched system. And they're learning, as I said, that revolution is not enough and that they have to get involved in the politics, which has always been a dirty game that anybody with any integrity would not have wanted to get involved in. And now they're learning how to game the system to be included and try to change it from the inside. So I look at this as a generational project. Kim, I think it was the French foreign minister before the elections who said Lebanon is the Titanic but without the orchestra. Did these results at least launch a few lifeboats given this terrible past decade of corruption and nepotism, not to mention mismanagement by political leaders? Well, this new parliament is certainly going to hold any new cabinet that is formed to account. They will hopefully do their job as legislators should in terms of questioning, in terms of scrutinizing, and in terms of legislating and voting on issues of key concern, including a um, IMF, a deal with the IMF for the recovery of Lebanon's economy, um, legislating on various issues like voting um, age, um, issues that have to do with women's rights, and also, um, hopefully, they'll push for Uh, the investigation into the Beirut port blast to proceed. Uh, Can you imagine that some of those who stand accused of having uh, played a role in the negligence that led to the port blast 
have been re-elected as members of parliament. They're members of the two main Shia parties, uh, Hezbollah and the other one being Amal, um, that are, uh, you know, that are that need to be questioned by an investigative judge. Um, but they're being protected by these political parties. Um, so it's it's complex. But again, I, I like to be realistic, but also avoid all cynicism and acknowledge the achievement that was attained uh, during these elections. Kim, could you talk a little bit about kind of everyday life um, now in, in Beirut and out in the countryside in Lebanon? How difficult is it to buy groceries, um, get access to medicines or health care, um, how do you go about, you know, filling uh, filling your car with a tank full of petrol? What's the employment situation like? I mean, certainly alarm bells are ringing, aren't they, at every stage in the economy? Yes, alarm bells have been ringing for, uh, for two years. And uh, the entrenched um, system, the oligarchy, the kleptocracy, whatever you want to call it, slash militias, because a lot of these parties are remnants of the Lebanese civil war, Hezbollah is still armed, you know, they had too much at stake and too much to lose to let go. So so they were, you know, uh, I think what the foreign minister meant was that they were continuing to play the music while the Titanic was sinking and not caring about saving the country. You know, Lebanon was a middle income country for, um, you know, in terms of living standards, according to the World Bank. Living here, you could argue you could compare the lifestyle to southern Italy or or Greece. Um, not in, I'm not comparing the economic styles, the economic systems, but in terms of lifestyle. And very quickly, very rapidly, we went from that to something more akin to Venezuela, with, as you said, shortages, devaluation of the national currency, hyperinflation, massive brain drain, shortages, etc. But I also want to put things in some perspective. The issue, as everywhere, is also one of have and have-nots. If you're able to access somehow income from abroad and you have access to hard currency in dollars, you can buy whatever you want in Lebanon. It's all available for the right price. You might have to queue for petrol, but if you have the right amount of money, you can send somebody to do it for you. But there are no shortages if you go to supermarkets, if you go to um, grocery stores, to butchers. There are no real shortages. What there is is the the lack of ability of some people, a large section of the population, to afford these basic necessities. There are shortages of flour because of Ukraine and and sunflower oil, of course, as well. And then when there are shortages of petrol, it's because the state is not able to pay um, for these purchases because um, the state is corrupt and its foreign reserves are, are dwindling rapidly. The brain drain is incredibly painful to watch. Uh, the American University of Beirut has lost 30 to 40 percent of its uh, academics and and um, and medical staff at the hospital. Everywhere around you, you you're asking for. You know, I have friends who run companies who are looking for architects, for designers, for waiters. You know that's very hard at the moment. Um, and of course, the World Bank says that over 75 percent of the Lebanese population is now living under the poverty line. But it, but it's always a number that I, I certainly don't dismiss it, and I don't pretend that things are easy for anyone in Lebanon. But there is an incredible sense of community in this country, and there is huge support from the Lebanese diaspora. And today, everyone has someone somewhere around the world 
who can send 100 or 200 dollars a month, which really goes a very long way in Lebanon um, today. And overall, on a day to day basis, things are remarkably normal, despite the power cuts despite um, the, the queuing for uh, for petrol occasionally. Uh, and there's no breakdown of civil order, which is really incredible considering what this country is going through. I can walk on the streets of Beirut in the dark because there are no city lights and not worry about being mugged. Of course, there is petty crime everywhere, uh, but the levels of petty crime in Lebanon are really incredibly low considering where we are at today. I mean, of course, you were in Beirut during the civil war in the 1980s. So presumably you understand what it feels like when chaos actually reigns on the streets and when there is open conflict. So even though you describe the kind of uneasiness and the sense of real struggle, certainly for people without that kind of income available to them, it seems to be a fairly ordered, settled situation in comparative terms. In comparative terms, yes, you'll have a lot of people tell you that this is worse than the civil war because it's so humiliating because, you know, your lifelong savings are stuck in the bank. And at 70 years old, you're having to beg your children to assist you, even though you have money in the bank. But capital controls uh, mean you can't access your savings. Um, Maybe you just retired and moved back from the Gulf after a 20 year long career. And uh, now you have to again to find a new job to get started. Maybe you're just, you know, you just had children and you can't afford their schooling again. It's this humiliation that is really difficult for people to bear. But there's no comparing what we're going through now with a period of the Civil War where, you know, you were having to dodge sniper bullets and sleeping in shelters and, you know, over 100,000 people were killed and 17,000 people are still still missing. They were never heard of again. Um, I think we have a tendency to round the edges of of our memories that are very difficult and look back at the civil war as a moment of incredible solidarity as well between neighbors, families, relatives, friends. And that's what we remember. And perhaps in 20 years, that's what we'll remember about this terrible crisis that we're going through now. I'm Kylie Morris. You're listening to Between the Lines on ABC Radio National. And joining us from Beirut today is author and journalist Kim Khatas. Um, I wanted to ask you about, of course, Lebanese politics has for many years been a playground for neighbouring states, hasn't it? With the presence of Syrians, the Americans, the Russians, the Saudis, Israel, you name them, they were there. How much meddling was there ahead of these elections? Is it even possible to tell where the lines of influence are currently? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Hezbollah makes no secret of the fact that their money, their weapons, their supplies, their backing comes from Iran. They make no secret of it. It's very public. That's how they pay their salaries. That's how they probably bought a lot of the votes. Uh, The rigging happens well before. The system is rigged. Electoral law is rigged. It's tailor-made for these traditional parties. There's a lot of vote buying that happens uh, well ahead of the voting. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on families. Uh, They're being, you know, a lot of them were told, if you don't vote for us, we'll cut you off. Family support, children support, uh, you know, you'll lose your job, your kids will lose, you know, your their place in school, etc. There's a lot of that kind of pressure. And then on the other side, you have Saudi Arabia, of course, which for a while, uh, looked at Lebanon as a, a lost cause, that they'd lost this to Iran and didn't care anymore. 
they, uh, you know, played their cards very badly here. They supported the former prime minister, Saad Hariri, son of Rafiq Hariri, who was assassinated in 2005. And they found that he was just not as good a politician as his father. And he kept losing ground and making the wrong compromises. You know, I'm being kind of nice about it. <laughs> he made some terrible mistakes uh, he um, he made some terrible mistakes, but that's that's uh, besides the point today. So Jurabia, in suddenly at the end of last year, decided that they'd had enough, and they kind of, you know, walked away and slammed the door behind them, taking their ambassador and um, withdrawing their diplomats and taking, you know, um, asking other Gulf countries to stand in solidarity with them. And then with some pressure from France, uh, a lot of pressure from France and some from the U.S. to the extent possible, because that relationship is also difficult, they decided that they had to re-engage. And I always say that, you know, in an ideal world, we don't want anyone to be playing a game on, on in, in Lebanon, in our territory, use Lebanon as a stage or as an arena. But it does create an imbalance. The reality is it does create an imbalance if the Saudis are no longer involved and Iran just has free reign. So the Saudis realized that as well. And they re-engaged about a month ago. Their ambassador came back. Um, they probably threw a lot of money into this as well to support one of the Christian uh, parties that they think is mostly aligned with, with Saudi Arabia in terms of their anti-Hezbollah position. So everyone is is involved. Of course, Hezbollah will say that this is all America's doing, that America's funding these um, uh, these independent opposition um, uh, activists who are now members of parliament, that, you know, this is a big plot. It's always very convenient in the Middle East to say it's all a plot by, uh, by America. Um, my understanding is that the U.S. stayed as far away as possible from all the individual candidates, but their influence played out in their position vis-a-vis, -vis, their very strong and firm position vis-a-vis -vis the need for reforms, um, their unwillingness to make more compromises with the establishment just for the sake of stability. They, they really pushed them hard. Um, they played a role in uh, convincing the Saudis to return to the stage. And they played a role in upholding and imposing um, um, uh, sanctions on members of, of the cabinet or parliament that were corrupt, like Gibran Basile, the former minister of foreign affairs, son-in-law of the president, or those who were involved um, directly or indirectly in uh, the events that led up to the port blast. So just to unpick that slightly, Kim, if I understand you correctly, what you're suggesting is that the, that the Americans may have played a role in trying to persuade the Saudis to kind of re-enter the frame when it came to Lebanese politics and the Lebanese elections. The Saudis did that by supporting pro-Christian candidates who might unsettle Hezbollah, who are backed by Iran. Is that right? That's a perfect summary of my convoluted explanation. No, yes. it wasn't at all convoluted, but it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the layers of that and how, as a Lebanese voter, you then go to a polling booth and really know who it is that you're voting for and where their connections and loyalties lie. That is not complicated for most Lebanese to, to figure out. I think most people know um, who's being backed by who, which parties are supported by which uh, outside forces, not always financially, but I think when it comes to Hezbollah, I mean, that's very clear. And when it comes to the Lebanese forces, this Christian party, 
they won big this time in the election. Their their sort of um, favorability is up because they stood up physically to Hezbollah in October last year when there was a clash around the issue of the port, the investigation into the port. And there were some armed clashes, which were very shocking because it's the first time that we've seen such heavy clashes in Beirut. But in a way, although um, it was very much sectarian Hezbollah versus supporters of this Christian party, Lebanese forces, the outcome was that Hezbollah's sense of invincibility was punctured. Their aura was was punctured in these clashes because they lost a couple of uh, hardcore fighters. And I think overall across the country, there was a sense of satisfaction that that had happened in that way and that they'd got their nose bloodied and that it had become clear that they were not almighty and that somebody could take them down. But nobody, absolutely nobody, wants to see civil war break out. No one in this new parliament is going to demand a forceful solution to the arms of Hezbollah. That's not the way to go forward. Kim, there's one neighbour we haven't spoken about. What about the ongoing relationship and attitudes to Israel within Lebanon? Will this new parliament change anything? No. Uh, that's it's. There's no relationship with Israel. Le- Lebanon and Israel are officially still in a state of war, uh, dealing with Israel, uh, traveling there, um, buying Israeli products are uh, sanctioned by the law in Lebanon as treason. And there is no one in Lebanon at the moment who has any time to uh, or any bandwidth to really discuss the bigger issue of Arab-Israeli, the Arab-Israeli conflict outside of the context of what is Hezbollah in Lebanon? What does it stand for? And why is it still um, keeping its, uh, its weapons arsenal? And Hezbollah is a problem on its own in the sense that it is now a regional paramilitary force with foot soldiers in Syria, in Iraq and Yemen. And the discussion about Hezbollah is no longer so much for Lebanon discussion about the state of war or not with Israel, but a discussion of why does a militia have the right to declare, to decide unilaterally when to go to war with outside countries, whether it's Israel or whether it is sending troops uh, and, 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 and fighters to Syria. This was a unilateral decision that Hezbollah took in 2013, which really impacted Lebanon, and which is something that will probably brought will probably be brought to to the fore uh, in the parliament to discuss Lebanon's defense strategy and how the arms of Hezbollah fit in or not. Kim, as this parliament is convened, and we know it could be a lengthy process, as as you were describing earlier, but what will you be looking for in terms of indications of uh, how healthy or robust the new political arrangements might be or otherwise? We're first looking at the election of a new Speaker of the House, who unfortunately will be the same old Speaker of the House, uh, the same one who's been around since 1992 for various reasons that have to do with the fact that the Speaker of the House is always from the Shia community, that there are no independent Shias who have been elected because of the stranglehold that the parties Hezbollah and Amal have on the community. 
So it will have to be somebody from that um, from one of those two parties, and they will only put forward the same man who's been at this uh, in this position for the last um, uh, three decades. That's Nabih Berri. After that, we'll have to wait for the cabinet formation. And after that, there's the presidential election in October. I suspect there's going to be a lot of wheeling and dealing so that we are reach an arrangement with a package deal with um, an agreement on who is going to be the president before there's an agreement on who the prime minister is and what his cabinet looks like. Kim, I think we need to leave it there. But thank you so much for that. I feel like I'm, I'm now fully immersed and up to date in uh, what's, <laughs> what's been happening in Lebanon uh, and what exactly those elections uh, mean. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kylie. That's Kim Khattas, journalist, writer, foreign correspondent, joining us today from Beirut. And that's the show. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer, who's having an extended break. I'll be back with more news and opinion from across the globe at the same time next week. Until then, bye for now. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.